Good morning, everybody. Um, the reading today is taken from the book of First Corinthians. I'll be reading uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, and then continuing verses 26 through 40. You may read along in the bulletin on page 6. And I would say, don't shoot the messenger on this one. <laughs> um, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy truth in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid the speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way.
We are continuing our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're nearing the close of this study. We'll be finishing up next week, uh, but here we are in chapter 4, which we're going to take in two parts, uh, part of it today and part of it next week, and so we'll take a look at these uh, verses again uh, in, in seven days. Uh, so please come back, and we'll finish this up. But let's pause first, and let's pray together uh, before we dive in. Jesus, we tremble before you, before your love, before your truth, before your word. Humble our hearts, make us ready for whatever you have in store for us. I pray that you would give grace to us and surprise us with your love, with your wisdom. Uh, Jesus, please come. You're the one we most need right now. Uh, we pray that you would send your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was pulling weeds in my garden yesterday. I don't know how you spent your day, at least in the morning. That's where I was, pulling weeds. And at times during that endeavor, I said to myself, man, didn't, didn't I just do this, right? How did this garden get so full of weeds all over again? It feels like the task of weeding a garden is just never done. It keeps coming back, never done. At other times in the morning, I actually found my job kind of rewarding, even fun. Like that time when after yanking and yanking and yanking at this weed that wasn't really all that big, but just wouldn't budge, and then when suddenly it came out, and I was stunned and overjoyed to find this long and skinny root that was over three, four feet long out of nowhere, right? A little joy and a strange mystery to find such a, a deep root holding that little weed together. Even my daughter was amazed when she saw it. Well, as I was doing all this and experiencing my garden, of course, like a preacher with the next day's sermon in mind, even while gardening, it got me thinking about our study of 1 Corinthians, about how, first of all, how roots, how roots of our lovelessness and selfishness, how deep those really run. We got to keep working at it and yanking those things out and not assume that they're just surface problems in our hearts. We deeply need the love of Christ to change us, don't we? And secondly, how weeding out our self centeredness and cultivating love is, is not a one time task. It takes work, it takes attentiveness, it takes vigilance, it takes the grace of God to change our hearts again and again and again and again until we see slowly a garden of joy and of grace, and of love developing in our lives. The Apostle Paul is cultivating a garden in Corinth and through them in us. It's why he's been teaching about love throughout this part of his letter, how to put people first, and why he's been doing it chapter after chapter through scenario after scenario that the Corinthian Christians were facing long ago. And this is why even after last week's incredible extended exposition on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we studied last week, that he has even more to say on the topic now as it relates to how we relate to each other on Sundays when we get together for corporate worship. Why? Because love is not a one-time thing. Pulling weeds of selfishness is not a one-time thing. The roots of our self-centeredness runs deep, and God, if we keep to it by his grace, really will produce a garden of love and joy. 
And so verse 1 tells us, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. You see, the overarching argument of this chapter, chapter 14, is that prophecy is to be preferred over tongues. Prophecy, of course, was a special gift that the early church had that enabled people to speak the very mind of God. They were communicating revelations by God's Spirit to one another for the upbuilding of God's people. Who is Christ? And what do the implications of Christ have to do with our daily lives? That was prophecy. Tongues was similar, but just in a language that nobody in the room necessarily spoke. Uh, tongue was, tongues is just another word for languages. It meant simply prophecy, but in words we don't understand. And the apostle here tells the Corinthian church that, you know, tongues are great, but they're not helpful in a gathering unless other people actually understand what you're saying. He says in verse 4, therefore, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies or builds up themselves, but the one who prophesies, in other words, speaks intelligibly in words everyone can understand, actually edifies or builds up the whole church. And that's why he goes as far as to say in verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets that tongue, th those languages. Because the whole goal is love. The way of love, which is to encourage, instruct, comfort, build up the people around you, not just yourself. Well, this is the focus, especially of verses 6 through 25, which we're going to cover next week. But even in this theme, what we find here in the final section of this chapter, which is our focus, verses 26 through 40, the topic of order in the corporate worship service and order as a form of love. You see, in verse 26, the apostles say this, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? He's talking about the gathered worship service in the church. But he's focusing on this theme of order, which we see in the very end at verse 40. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. We also see it in the middle there in verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And of course, by order, what we're talking about is having form or shape or sequence or structure. The worship service should be orderly, should have shape, should have form to it in a way that actually blesses people, strengthens them, edifies them. Because it's not just about you and what spontaneously arises in your heart. We need to arrange these gatherings in a way that actually edifies. And so that's why Paul reiterates the central principle of love in the second half of verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. Let me say it again. Order is a form of sacrificial love. Now We don't normally think of order in that sort of way. But if you just think of, let's say, a kindergarten classroom. Those of you that are teachers understand Chaos actually is detrimental to the well-being of little ones. Putting some structure, giving instructions to small children actually is a way to care for them so that they can flourish. They need that kind of loving 
order. It's sacrificial, though, in the sense that maybe for the individual child, they might need to give up some of their spontaneous expressiveness. What a joy. But for the care of others in the room, it comes with a cost, doesn't it? Or maybe if I want to email people, a group of people, well, of course, it might be easier for me just to throw out a bunch of words on a page But actually, that might amount to a poorly communicated email that might result in confusion or even hurt. To put some order, some structure, form, sequence, intentionality behind how I organize my communication, the ministry of order, if you will, actually is a way to love people, to communicate clearly. And that's a sacrificial act. It's love. Why? Well, because it takes time and energy. It forces me to have to write not just whatever's on my mind the first time it comes out, but to actually give thought to it, to edit, to delete. You see, order can be a form of sacrificial love. And what Paul does here in this passage is he opens up two key expressions of this principle of order as love. First of all, he does it in the way that he talks about how prophecy, again, is to be preferred over uninterpreted tongues. So in verse 8, if there is no interpreter of your tongues, that is, of your speaking the mind and the heart of God, but in another language by a special supernatural gift of God, what does Paul say there? The speaker should then keep quiet, if there's no interpreter, in the church and speak to himself and to God. In other words, love means silence because that other language speaking isn't helpful to other people. So Paul says, go ahead and speak tongues, but do it in private as a form of prayer, as a blessing to yourself, but don't bring it out in public because it's not going to help anyone there. I mean, it's really this incredible thing, right? You have a message from God God's spirit has communicated something to your heart that you feel must be communicated. It might encourage somebody. It almost maybe feels like your heart might explode. But here's Paul who says, but if it's not helpful. But but, but, but what do you mean helpful? But this is true. This is of God. No, no, no. But if it's not helpful to others, if they literally cannot even understand it, don't share it. Stay silent. Or here's another expression of this principle, where Paul says, when people come up to prophesy and speak the words of God, make sure you come by one by one. Again, an expression of this ministry of order as a form of sacrificial love. Go one by one, verse 29, two or three prophets should speak in a worship service like this, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Look at verse 30. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, then the first speaker should stop. In other words, to give a chance for the next speaker to share what is on their heart. Wait, 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 I'm not done yet, though. No, stop. It's someone else's turn. In fact, that language there. uh, translated in our translation, speakers should stop, is actually the very same word, silent, in verse 28. The principle of sacrifice and self-control is an element of love here. 
Why be silent? I'm not yet done. It's someone else's turn. What are you talking about? Well, Paul says, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. One at a time, in order, not in a jumble of chaos. Why? To love people better so that they can actually hear what you're saying, so they can receive the encouragement of Christ. This is a principle of love. This is what Paul is calling the church to again and again. And as we've learned over the weeks, the Corinthian church, of course, had fallen into a degree of self-centeredness and even an obsessiveness with the most impressive gifts. They wanted to do spectacular things. They wanted to appear spiritual. Here Paul is calling them to stop, to show regard for other people, to put others in the worship room before themselves, to love. And it's in this context that our passage addresses the topic of women. And this is what we're going to spend the remainder of our time looking at, because it's a difficult passage, and this is what it says in verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. What does that mean? What does it not mean? This is hard. This is complex. Interpreters and readers of this passage have wrestled with it for literally centuries. So what does it mean? Let's take a stab. Well, first, what I want to explain to you is that there have been numerous ways that Bible interpreters have tried to understand this text and I first want to give you five different ways that different interpreters have gone about it before presenting what I think is a good reading of this passage. Five different ways. Number one, swallow it whole. In other words, some take these words just for face value, applying them in their most literalistic sense. The apostle says that women should be silent in the churches, therefore women should be silent, should not speak, should not be heard from. And you need to obey it because this is what God's word seems to plainly see it. There are some who take this position, though, who also take a different approach and conclusion in the end, who say that is what the passage says, and therefore you need to not obey it, you need to therefore reject it. Because Paul is simply a misogynist, and he's advocating for the subjugation of women, which is patently unacceptable. And of course, when you read these words plainly, there's a lot of reason to be sympathetic to this view. We need to acknowledge that. Swallow it whole, number one. Swallow it, number two. Ignore it. Ignore it. And this is what some interpreters have noted. Uh, that this passage here, some would say, is debatable whether or not it actually was in the original text that Paul himself had written. Or that it wasn't actually written by Paul himself, and therefore it reflects a rule that God did not intend to be there, but God added later on. In other words, we do have a few ancient manuscripts, not the majority, but we do have some that have this 
verse or these two verses, 34 and 35, but stuck in the margins or not there at all, showing that it looks like some scribe may have added it later on, adding some things that are found in other letters in the New Testament. What are we to make of that? Well, some people say it wasn't really meant to be there, so you can ignore it entirely. It's not meant to be heeded. Number three, expire it. So not swallow it, not ignore it, but expire it. In other words, the belief here or the reading here is that what Paul is talking about is a temporary situational restriction. There was something going on in the local church of Corinth at that time that he was addressing very particularly. Maybe some women were being especially disruptive. Uh, Some people say the problem wasn't anything more than just exuberant chatter and noise that just needed to be quieted down. Or perhaps there was a particular problem with women who were sort of questioning or challenging the speakers of prophecy. And so, therefore, that particular need, yes, did need to be addressed, but that was for them and then and no longer for us. Unless perhaps you have a problem like that. If somebody starts to make noise or makes the whole service disruptive, then maybe you can say you should be silent. But otherwise, there's no need to apply the passage beyond that scope. Number four, reverse it. Swallow it, ignore it, expire it, reverse it. And what I mean by that is a number of different interpreters believe that what verse 34 and 5 constitute is actually a quotation of Paul's where he is reading back or writing back to the Corinthian church a slogan that they had been parading around the church. That it wasn't Paul, but the Corinthians that were saying women should be silent in the churches, they're not allowed to speak, etc. And what Paul actually then means to do is to refute it. So in the end, actually, the meaning of this passage would be the very reverse. Paul isn't saying that women should be silent. Paul is saying, don't silence the women as you have been saying and teaching wrongly in your church. Lastly, number five, modernize it. This is a broad sort of approach that doesn't deal with the details of the passage, but it's a a growing view that's growing in popularity. And it's one that says this, That in the time of the New Testament, there were a lot of concessions, accommodations that were being made to the social customs of the first century. Customs that were, as we can look back and see and evaluate now, were evil or wrong or broken. There were concessions that were being made and therefore they don't necessarily consist of transcendent principles for God's people that we can apply even to today. In fact, if we look closely, what we can discern is that God was on the move to change these things. You might not find them anywhere in the passages of Scripture, but if we trace the dotted line of where God was heading with these social issues, we can conclude that by now his intent and will for us was to update these otherwise culturally retrogressive kinds of Practices. You might find it in the Bible, but we are called to look past them and to therefore ignore them. Swallow it, ignore it, expire it, reverse it, modernize it. A lot of different readings. 
Come on out to the Q&A time afterwards in our service, and we'll talk about these a little bit more if you're interested in doing so. And what I'm about to present you, I'm not going to be able to respond to each of those in great detail. I will interact with some of them a little bit. But if you want to keep talking about each of those approaches, they're actually similar to the way that a lot of passages are approached across the Bible. And so there's some greater learning that might be yielded from having a deeper conversation about it. But that being said, I think there's another way to read this passage. What might that sound like? What might that look like? And I want to note, as you'll hear, that there are some strands of accuracy and helpfulness, even in some of the schools of thought or readings that I just mentioned to you. How can we pull from the best of these things? How can we see the text for what it actually says? How can we understand what Paul originally meant and how the Corinthians would have heard what he said? Well, number one, what we can understand is that there probably was some kind of a situation that was unique to the Corinthian church. There was something going on there. It seems across this letter that the new Christians that had come alive to the Spirit of God had found a newfound freedom in the gospel. But in such a way, they started to feel like they were no longer bound to any kind of customs, any kind of regulations. So here were prophets speaking and also judging other prophecies, but without any kind of restraint. And in fact, as we know in the city of Corinth, in the church of Corinth, there was a lot of spiritual superior, superiority complexes that were developing in the church. They were not only prophesying without restraint and judging other prophecies without restraint. They were feeling pretty good about it. They were puffed up, arrogant, and proud, showing off their gifts and their superior spirituality. It's why in verse 36, we do actually hear Paul challenge them a bit, saying this, Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's commands. In other words, here were some Christians that were sort of saying, hey, we're free, order is oppressive. The apostle says, no, if you pay attention to the Holy Scriptures, here are some commands of order, and they're actually loving. And in fact, in this situation, we see some clues that it also involved husbands and wives in the church. That in some way, the way that people were handling prophecy, women especially, in some way it was undermining marriages in the church. As we see this reference to husbands in verse 35. We'll come back to that in a second. So there were some situational things going on. But secondly... It's also clear that Paul intends his teaching not just to be applied to that situation, but to all churches everywhere, including our own. He makes an appeal to the law there in verse 34, as the law says. Probably a reference to Genesis 1 and 2, which Paul has already quoted in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians when he was talking about gender in a different setting. He's talking about the original design and map that God had for our gender relations, especially the relationship between husband and wife, as seen in the creation of Adam and of Eve. He's appealing to a source outside of Corinth, the very word of God, the law there. But he also addresses all the congregations of the Lord's people in verse 33. 
He tells them that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command in verse 37. It is clear even in these very words themselves that Paul intends this to extend far beyond the walls of the Corinthian church. It is situational, but it is more. Paul is addressing, it seems, all women, not just those that were causing problems in that local church setting. But what exactly is it that he's calling them to do or to be? When he says here in verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches, they are not allowed to speak. Well, thirdly, this is a very important point for us to notice. And if you've been with us studying this entire letter consecutively, you have an advantage here. As I point out to you in chapter 11, verse 5, we were told by the Apostle Paul that there were people in the church that were prophesying and praying, including women. Women who pray or prophesy publicly in the church were noted by Paul and encouraged by Paul. Did not say no to women prophets speaking the truth of God in the worship setting. And in fact, in verse 26, we also see this. Paul speaking to both the men and the women in the church. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He's not at all at that point restricting the exercise of spiritual gifts by gender in any way. Which then raises this question. Well then, if women were allowed to speak, even allowed to speak the very words of God in prophecy, what kind of silence was he talking about? What other kind of speaking does Paul refer to in this immediate context? And the answer is a kind of speaking that we find in verse 29, where Paul gives this broad principle, which he unpacks in the subsequent verses. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. The kind of speaking that Paul is talking about there is a speaking in evaluation of what the other prophets in the church said. It's sitting in judgment over the prophetic speech of the other members of the church, where you're sort of asking questions as to the truth of what they said. To see if whether it squares with the rest of scripture, of what is known about the cross and resurrection of Christ. In fact, in verse 35, we hear this language, if they want to inquire about something referring to the women, that word inquire can also be rendered interrogate or cross-examine. You see, in the early church, there was a, a series of teachings that were allowable in a church, but somebody had to referee that and tell you if they were right or wrong. This kind of weighing what was taught, what was said, testing, evaluating the prophecy of the teaching, this is what it appears Paul is talking about as he restricts the exercise of speech by gender. Who is it that should be doing this kind of weighing carefully what is said? Well, in verse 25, 29, it's pretty broad. It implies that everyone in the congregation should be doing this weighing. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 10, Paul actually uses that same language of weighing 
to refer to a special gift weighing carefully the spirits. So it seems to be a unique role that some people exercise. It seems to belong to those who are responsible for teaching or leading the congregation. And this is where the tradition has come about of understanding that Paul in verse 29 is talking about a special body of leaders, which we in our tradition call elders. Other traditions call it different things and assign that task to other leaders in the church. But these are the ones that say, this is what the body of doctrine, the truth of the gospel that's going to be taught here is all about. And that is what is consistent with that teaching. And here over here, that is not consistent with the teaching. They are the judges, the evaluators, the testers, the elders of the community. It's taken from the tradition of the Jewish synagogue in the ancient world, in fact. And this is how Kathy Keller, who's a scholar in her own right, the wife of Pastor Tim Keller up in New York City, and she's done some writing on this topic, and this is how she explains it. I thought it was helpful. Without a resident trained clergy and an authoritative compilation of the deposit of truth left by Jesus in those days, traveling apostles, messengers of apostles, and even apostle wannabes could show up at a worship event and just speak. So depending on the forcefulness of the speaker, they might win a hearing for their interpretation of Jesus' teaching. So false doctrine was the biggest enemy of the infant church in those days. And the counter to it was to have a group of local elders chosen for their maturity in the faith whose job it was to judge truth from heresy, whether from the mouths of their own local congregation or from a traveling speaker. This is precisely what Paul is talking about, not other forms of speaking and teaching. And you say, well, what does this husband's thing and this marriage thing have to do with this passage? Well, it seems like apart from or in addition to the broader issue that was going about, you also had in Corinth a situation where there were wives, it seems, that began to cross-examine their husband's prophecy right there in public in front of everyone. And what Paul is talking about here is, well, instead of acting ju as judges over their husbands in public, well, talk about it at home uh, for both of your sakes. That's specifically what the apostle describes as disgraceful. By calling him out in public, you are shaming him, bringing humiliation to himself and to you. Well, of course, wives should challenge their husbands if they are wrong. That is a responsibility of the whole church, as we just said. It should be tested what is said, but how should they do it? Verse 35, if they want to inquire about someone, they should ask their own husbands at home. This is a passage that often, a sentence that often has been used to say, keep silent and your husband will teach you everything you need to know at home, and it's not what it means. We're talking about that act of cross-examining and interrogating a public teaching. Keep peace in your relations. Respect one another. This is what the apostle was getting at. Of course, the teaching is that there is a gender restriction in the way that this is being handled. Women should remain silent, meaning not fulfill this function of judging the teaching as the elders are called to do. And this is consistent with what is taught 
by the same apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which you might be familiar with. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And between those two verses, we have what really are the two primary functions of elders, that is, authoritative teaching, like preaching, and the judgment of doctrine, evaluating and testing what is going to be held up as the truth of God according to his word in the life of this church. That function is what the apostle is saying, is restricted to men only. And it's in this sense that the women in the church are told that they should be in submission in verse 34. So to be clear in context, understood in context, in submission, not to all men generally, no. Nor relinquishing every kind of authority that a woman might possess, but only with respect to this one office of elder and the specific kind of teaching and evaluating of teaching that's built into that office of elder. In other words, it should also be said that all men who aren't elders are called to this very same kind of submission. So why? An important question. Why would God have it this way? So even if it's clear that this is what the text, as a, as a good faithful reading of what was originally intended as those words were written, even if we can arrive at that, is there any explanation as to why? Well, we get one little clue here. Again, in that verse, verse 34, they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. Which, as I mentioned before, is probably an allusion or reference to Genesis 1 and 2 when God created man and woman, both in the image of God as co-equals, equal in dignity and glory as image bearers, but also distinct. And we read about the institution of marriage and the different ways in which those two genders relate to each other in marriage as well. 1 Timothy 2 cites the same part of the Old Testament as it talks about this restriction of the office of elder. There's a lot to work through there, but it does seem at least what Paul is appealing to is something about the order of creation, which doesn't mean the superiority of all men over all women, but something about the sequence in which man and woman were created, something about the origins of each of their genders, which at least point to the way in which their differences do, in fact, need to be honored. There's something built into our human design that leads the apostle to say these things. Beyond that, we don't know. Why would God appoint only men to be, and again, not all men, but only men who are called, which is a pretty narrow slice of man, to be called as an elder, the truer answer and the fuller answer is we don't know. We don't know exactly why. We do know what it's not. Why not? Well, it's not because men are better. It's not because there's anything about their biology that makes them better pastors or preachers or leaders in the church. I mean that sincerely. I can name to you a number of women that can preach circles around me. It's not because of giftedness. It's not because of intellectual ability or a superior temperament or any other things, some of which have often been cited by people as giving reasons for why God might ordain it, that men might be elected and ordained as elders and not women. 
We do have one little clue additionally, though, that might be worth pointing out. And that's something that's related to the way that the Bible talks about the church as the family of God. In 1 Timothy 5, the apostle refers to the church with that language. In Ephesians 2, the church is described as the household of God. In 1 Timothy 3, as the office of elder is unpacked in terms of qualifications, we actually hear the apostle describe the leadership in the church as an analogy to leadership in the home. Roles in the church as sort of comparable to roles in the home. And this is where I think we get a little glimpse into some of what might be on the mind and heart of God. And it's this, could it be that the office of elder, pastors, and leaders in that particular role are called to be dad-like in the church? Which, of course, doesn't say anything about a devaluation of moms or women in the church, but this one particular role, this office, is, is sort of an analogy to the office of dad in the home, as it were which is very similar, but also distinct from the office of mom, if we could put it in those terms. Uh, There's something about the way in which dad might express leadership and do things with respect to a child in the household that might be a little bit different with respect to how mom might do things. In other words, could it be that there's something unique, something unique to the male gender that expresses the particular kind of leadership and authority in the church that God intends to be expressed, which again and again and again needs to be said, which is not a better kind of authority or a better kind of leadership, but simply is built into the unique role that is the elder, which, by the way, many Christian traditions refer to as what? Fathers. What if this is part of the internal logic of God. I don't mean to presume that that is for face value immediately convincing to people it's worth thinking about, but this is what I do think needs to be more convincing to us, and that is the picture of Jesus that we have. Jesus, who is, of course, the epitome of of one who existed within the order of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet who devoted himself in sacrificial love. One who gave himself, even in submission to God the Father, gave himself, even you might say, in submission to us, laying down his life in sacrifice for our sins, for all of our lovelessness, for all the chaos of our brokenness in order to make us all. You know who was shot as the messenger? It was Jesus. This is Jesus who embodies the very ethic that is being presented to us. If I could, again, quote from Kathy Keller's writings, Jesus is the reason you can trust that God's justice is behind our different gender roles. It takes both men and women living out their gender roles in the safety of home and church to reveal to the world the fullness of the person of Jesus. The glory of gender roles for me is that everyone gets to reveal an aspect of Jesus' life. Jesus in his servant authority, dying in order to bring his bride to spotless purity, has redefined authority itself and has demanded that his followers do the same. 
On the other hand, Jesus, in his submissive servanthood, taking on the role of a servant in order to secure our salvation, shows that his submission to the Father was a gift, not something compelled from him. At no time is his equality with the Father ever called into question. Nevertheless, he willingly assumed the role of a servant for the purpose of accomplishing our justification. Friends, if Jesus had no category or no impulse towards order, no category and no impulse towards sacrificial service, no category or impulse for describing himself even in his own words in the Gospel of John as one who is submitted to the Heavenly Father, if that's only bad language, if those are not at all possible to be redeemed in the matrix of the Gospel, If Jesus wasn't all those things and didn't do all those things, we could not be saved. Could it be that there's redemptive value to the way these things might be put together? Redemptive power to the way that these things might be lived out, which is really hard because we've screwed it up so badly, haven't we? And this is something we have to acknowledge. Because there's been a lot of grave misuse of parts of the Bible that speak like this and even of a passage like this. Where this has been used in order to silence people in a sinful way. Silence women in a sinful way. Where this is read as an absolute command. Where basically women are told that they don't have a place or a voice. And where eventually in a community, a requirement of silence slowly becomes, turns into a pernicious perception that those women are actually worthy of such silence. Where the language of submission begins to glide into the belief or practice that this is not narrowly submission as it relates to the office of elder, but rather that all women are to be submitted to all men. We need to acknowledge the way in which some of this language has been twisted and utilized toward the subjugation of women in society and even in the church. And what we need to do and be as a community that's being attentive, at least striving to be attentive to God's word, is to understand that any restriction of the use of women's gifts of women's leadership or participation in the community life, contrary to God's word, is utterly acceptable and even, utterly unacceptable and even condemnable. That we need to be a community in accordance with God's word that fights against the literal marginalization of women, pushing them, pushing you to the outskirts of community life. We need to fight against that. Why? The word of God. The word of God that tells us, yes, women are to be prophesying, speaking truth, exercising their gifts in the life of the community. The word of God that says, yes, come on in, brothers and sisters, you come together. Each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation. Speak, encourage, comfort, rise up, lead. We must if we're to be faithful and attentive to God's word itself. And when we're not, what we have seen is this not only marginalizes, but it even results in the abuse of women and the development of cultures of abuse in churches. 
where women are not only treated as second class, but actually are encouraged to exercise silence, even in the face of domestic abuse, refusing to report crimes against them to law enforcement as instructed to them by their spiritual leaders, case after case, which we've heard about in the news recently, all of which need to be condemned in a thoroughgoing fashion. And this is what we need to grapple with. This is what needs to humble us, that Christian communities are often worse at addressing these dynamics of sexual abuse and assault than other types of institutions. Rachel Denhollander, who was one of the prime witnesses in the Larry Nassar case and now has become a public advocate for survivors, abuse survivors, but who also has become a very helpful, thoughtful, theologically informed critic of the Christian church, wrote this helpfully, poignantly, and prophetically. Listen, the church is... She's writing herself as an abuse survivor. The church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse. Because the way it is counseled is more often than not damaging to the victim. There is an abhorrent lack of knowledge for the damage and devastation that sexual assault brings. It is with deep regret that I say the church is one of the worst places to go for help. That's a hard thing to say because I have a very deep commitment to the church, but that is the truth, she writes. And I know that has been terribly the story of some of you. That needs to change. That needs to not be the case here in this church. This drift in this line from an unbiblical application of passages related to this kind of silence that drifts into a culture of abuse. Jesus is taking the American church to the threshing floor right now. And the truth is, we as a church also need to be open to whatever he has in store for us, calling us, ourselves, our community here to greater alignment with God's word, better alignment with the truth of the gospel, stripped free of cultural entanglements that has added to the word of God in accordance with preferences, in accordance with the exercise of patriarchal power, we need to humble ourselves and let Jesus examine us that we might be true to our sisters and indeed to all of us once again. So in closing, I know we're over time, but this is really important. In closing, I want to talk about how we might then take some steps in that direction. What does this look like in application? Number one, I want to tell you that the Grace DC session, our network of elders and pastors across our three congregations, we lead these congregations jointly, that we have begun to take steps to address these questions of assault and abuse head on. We have recognized, and we do recognize, that we as a church have insufficient procedures for handling accusations of sexual assault or abuse involving a male Grace DC pastor or elder, and we know that we need to change that and spell it out. We openly acknowledge that we, as male leaders, we have blind spots. With respect to the experience of women in the church and in society, and we also have blind spots as to the way that you sisters can see things in scriptures that we sometimes cannot. And so we acknowledge we need more input from women, from our sisters. 
And we as a leadership have a fresh and sober readiness. We do. A fresh and sober readiness to repent of any ways that we have unbiblically, perhaps, restricted women in our church community. If that is the case, that needs to change. And so we have begun to erect what we're calling, we haven't named it formally yet, but something along the lines of a committee on the protection and esteem of women at Grace D.C. It's a special committee that will function for at least the next year. It'll be comprised of four elders, pastors from each congregation, including myself, together with six to eight different women from across our three congregations. We want your sister, you sisterly voices to even crowd out ours as we step forward. And the purpose of this committee is going to be the formation of policy and procedures regarding abuse and assault of women in our church. We need to nail that down. And secondly, also the review and the development of community practices in our congregations that either promote or hinder a biblical esteem of women. We're gonna get this right or at least take steps to get it better. Please pray for us as we take steps in this direction. We do expect this to be an uncomfortable process at times, but we also expect it must be so if it is gonna be effective, and we also expect it to be life-giving and necessary. Secondly, in all this talk about the esteem of women in our church, despite this one restriction of the office of elder to men only, we are joyfully bringing before you, as you've heard already and participated in, the creation of this new role called the shepherdess. This so far is unique to the Grace Meridian Hill congregation. You say, what is it? Well, it's a group of women who are going to nurture and counsel and pray for the members of the Grace Meridian Hill community with a particular focus on the women of the church that will work closely together with the elders, the ordained shepherds of the church. And we need to do this because the church needs to actively celebrate and protect the value of women in our ministries and in our Relationships, Because the service and the leadership of you sisters is not in the church optional or preferable, but essential to the flourishing of the body of Christ, including this local expression of Christ's body at Grace Meridian Hill, as every member of our church, men and women, uses their various gifts. And so we feel called to encourage qualified women to serve in roles of public leadership in various ministries of word and deed functioning under the authority and supervision of the elders but giving expression to the image of God to those in the church as well as those in the world. And we want to do this because it's biblical first and foremost. Because we see the Bible encouraging us in this direction as we've seen even in this passage. But we also know this will give a whole variety of practical advantages and blessings to us, including, as we anticipate them, providing leadership opportunities for those of you who are gifted in discipleship and care ministries, who like to mentor and walk alongside and counsel other women across the church, who uh, we expect that this will supplement and complement the shepherding ministry of our 
elders, especially in areas or specific counseling cases where we might be limited. We need you to help us. We need you to, in some cases, take the lead in giving us insight and counsel. We believe that these shepherdesses will also enable our ordained leadership to receive regular input and insight from the perspective of women, which we have lacked and which we definitely need for many decisions and matters of ministry. And finally, we expect and hope that this will increase the access of you female members in the church to other trained and accountable leaders who are also women. Lengthening our bench as a team, but also giving you special access, especially when you need a sisterly or older sisterly ear. We're grateful for this opportunity to build up these shepherdesses and to unleash them in our church. It's one of the most exciting things I think that we're doing now and that we've done in several years. Please pray for that and pray for our shepherdess candidates even as we elect them in two weeks. And if you want to talk about the shepherdess role more, please come after service to our special discussion forum. Thirdly and lastly, and to close with this, we need to grow in our understanding together, even on a very local, personal level, how we are to protect and esteem our sisters made in the image of Christ in this church. Some things we need to do. Number one, we need to study what this looks like biblically more and more. Because if a lot of us have, if not all of us, have opinions on this, the question still remains, is your opinion shaped more by God's word or more by the surrounding culture? It's not to say that the culture doesn't have a lot of good things and wisdom and insight to share with us, but all of our ultimate convictions about ultimate things, including our identities, need to be formed by the word of God. And so I have a book here in my hand that I would love to commend to you that we might read together in the fall when I come back. It's called Two Views, Two Views on Women in Ministry, written by a collection of four different scholars that had, have differing views on this issue of women in leadership. Two from an egalitarian perspective, two from a more traditional perspective, and they write back and forth in conversation with each other, but they are rigorously biblical in their argumentation and in their reasoning, and this is the level of depth that we need to get at. It's hard work, some of it's technical, but that's the kind of help that we will give to you as we study together. But even beyond the technical study side, what will it look like for us to be a church that enlarges and expands our celebration and our placement of women in different public roles of leadership? How can we be a, a community that can take seriously even verse 39 that says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, be eager to speak, be eager to lead, be eager to fill spaces across our community with your, yes, brotherliness and, of course, your sisterliness. How can we be a church that uniquely esteems women in the body of Christ? Guided by the power of the gospel and the word of the gospel of grace. Finding what the Bible gives us so often, which is a third way a way beyond the ways of this world, even when it 
deals with and tackles these challenging issues where we're not seeking just to nudge over to a more traditional way, nor seeking on the other side to nudge more towards a more progressive or egalitarian way, but rather to seek a biblical way, which might lead us to adopt maybe some elements from each but also will lead us rightly to be able to critique each as well and to form another way that might be simply out of this world. With a greater kind of esteem, with a greater kind of power, with a greater kind of love, a greater kind of joy. Can you imagine being a community that can talk about issues of gender and leadership and belonging in church and community with joy? What would that be like? What could that be like? I'm not being pie in the sky and naive about the wounds and the hurts and the frustrations that fill your hearts and minds. But I also believe that the grace of God can give us healing and progress and hope in a totally new way of relating to one another because we're being changed by the supernatural love of Christ, by the power of his good news. Don't you want to be a church like that? I do. I really do. Let's pray. We need your help, God. We really do. Everything that's been said, based upon your word, it's easy to grow cynical about it or even hopeless perhaps, but we need your help and your power every step of the way. And so we're offering ourselves to you as your servants, all of us, every one of us submitted to you and to your word, and we want to say, God, change us. Make us into a church like no other, not for our own glory and pride and self-commendation, but for the glory of Jesus that the world could look at the way that we interact, men and women, leadership, servants, followers, all different kinds of roles and expressions of your glory, that the world can look at that and say, how did that happen? And that they would walk away saying, there's no other way that that could have happened but for God, that you might get all the glory, that we might find new joy, that people might actually be drawn to a whole new way of relating in love. Make us that sort of church. We pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit with the risk of hope and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand together and let's pray.